Hi guys, it's Alex here and providing a short interrupt from this week's podcast to tell you about SASDOC 2022. You might have heard from most of our guests that they are coming to Dublin on the 17th to the 19th of October to speak at SASDOC 2022. You may not know that Christoph Jans, managing partner of Point9 Capital, calls it the best SaaS conference for founders, execs, and investors in Europe, period. Just today, I was on LinkedIn, and SaaS founder Will Reed, who is the CEO of Sideway6, called it the best SaaS event out there. Thanks, Will. We think he's right. So let's dig in. SaaS.2022 is the conference for you if you're a SaaS founder, or exec growing a SaaS company to 10 million ARR plus, anywhere from zero to 10 million ARR. And you want to learn how to do it, how to get there, how to surpass that figure. You want to learn how to overcome the odds, how to boost your velocity. You'll come away equipped from the conference with the tools to do this, the tools to accelerate your revenue, your team and runway. You will learn from the best founders in the SaaS industry with amazing speakers like Des Trainer, co-founder of Inscom, Zeb Evans, co-founder at ClickUp, Hanno Renner, co-founder at Personio, and Alina and Nicholas Vandenberg, who are the co-founders of Chili Piper. There's 150 speakers across four stages, including a stage dedicated to bootstrappers. If you're not bootstrapping, there's 400 VCs coming to Dublin to meet with founders from pre-seed through to growth stage. In 2019, there was around 10,000 meetings that we recorded through our app. So if you want to meet VCs, this is the place to be this year. The networking is also second to none. We, it includes workshops, pub crawls, dinners, parties, and much more. Mads Wedekorp, CEO of Dream Influencers, attended in 2019, and he said SASDOC is very likely the most awesome SaaS conference in the world. The secret to getting maximum value is all of the after-hour events. It's during the dinners and the after-parties that the real connections are made. Thanks for that, Mads. If you're a SaaS founder or part of the exec team of a SaaS company, you want to meet your peers, you want to grow your business past 10 million ARR, you want to meet investors to fund your SaaS company, you want a few days to inspire you, then you need to be at SaaS.2022 at the RDS 17th to the 19th of October in Dublin, Ireland. Come and join the fun. Get your ticket now at sasdoc.com forward slash sasdoc slash 2022. Use code SASREVOLUTION, all lowercase in one word, for a 30% discount. That's code SASREVOLUTION for a 30% discount. Now on with the show. One stat that I obsess with is that at any point in time of your addressable market, only 5% of them are going to be buying. And so do you just ignore the 95%? I don't think so. And that's where brand building comes in. I mean, I guess like there's that quote that Coca-Cola doesn't advertise on billboards because you're going to go and buy Coca-Cola right away. But when you are thirsty, you'll remember Coca-Cola. And I think it's the same thing with the B2B buyer journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today, and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I am your host, Alex Thuma, uh, CEO of SaaStock, and delighted to be here today with Natasha Ratanchi stein 
Welcome, Natasha. Thanks, Alex. Delighted to be here today. I omitted the fact that you are the founder and CEO of Surfboard. Um, and and actually, like I know we'd spoken previously, uh, but I wanted to kind of double check before you came on the podcast that you because you know, sometimes the founder is the CEO or the COO or CTO or many uh, OOs, um, and it just said founder on LinkedIn, just a founder. So are are you? And not saying this in, uh, in any way, just the founder, but you know, are you, you know, are you the CEO, or why is it to say just founder? Yeah, don't worry, Alex. So I am the founder and CEO. Um, I often associate the title CEO with like late stage S&P 500 or FTSE 100 companies. And so I feel like relative to the stage surfboards at, which is that we started um, at the very end of, of 2020, uh, founder just feels like it's a more applicable title. But I am I am technically the founder and CEO as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, person, uh, I've, I've heard this before and actually felt it personally. Uh, I think for the first couple of years of, of Sastock, I was also I was the founder. I didn't feel like deserved to be like what I'm the CEO of a seven person company. Like you know, yeah. it's just like this is a bit like bit weird. But then I've kind of grown hopefully into that, and now I, I feel that you know I am the CEO of the the, the business. So uh, uh, it's good stuff. Um, but Natasha, like we always kind of like start uh, by asking our guests who they are. Um, so I'm going to ask, uh, who is Natasha Rotanchi Stein? Yeah, exactly. So apart from being um, the founder and CEO of Surfboard, I'm Canadian originally. I moved to London 13 years ago. I have not picked up any form of the accent. I have no idea why. I think I just have a really strong West Coast uh, North American accent. Um, I studied at the London School of Economics. Um, I then started working at Goldman Sachs in their mergers and acquisitions team um, before leaving to join a venture capital fund called Piton Capital, focused on investing in online businesses that benefit from network effects. Um, so I spent five years as a VC and then spending more and more time with founders, but also experienced operators. I had this itch to become an operator. Um, and so I joined a company called Bulb, uh, which at the time was the one of the fastest growing companies in Europe um, in the renewable energy space, um, adding about 40,000 domestic properties per week as, as customers. Um, I joined as chief of staff and so naturally um, in a generalist role ended up helicoptered into various functions within the organization and um, the first function I went into was the customer support team and so um, with the hyper growth Bulb was experiencing at the time the biggest challenge they had was scaling the support team in accordance with the growth in in customer numbers Um, and so what that meant practically was that long email backlogs, long phone wait times, um, inability to provide really efficient channels like live chat. Um, and so I went in to diagnose and ultimately come up with solutions to, to that problem, which is where I stumbled across the problem of surfboard and then um, left the company about um, two years later and ultimately um, scratched yet another itch to, to start surfboard. Very cool. Thanks for that. Um... Yes, I mean, I was going to say, you're, uh, you haven't lost the uh, the Canadian or the the, uh, the, the West Coast uh, sort of accent. But I guess like in London, that, that's quite possible because it's probably, you know, it's such a cosmopolitan city. You're probably hanging around with a lot of international people. Maybe you need to hang around with more like, you know, Cockney uh, sort of East, you know, proper East uh, End uh, sort of folks. Um, and uh, the around the chief of staff, just a comment on that because actually it's a... As you said, it, it, it's quite a generalist role, but it's a really 
good like stepping stones to understand how to be a CEO, right? Because um, and getting that, uh, um, I guess, experience to to be a future CEO. So, for anybody you know who is kind of perhaps sort of looking, you know, to run a company uh, and be a CEO one day, and you're kind of at that kind of earlier stage and thinking about career. Maybe being, you know, if you're lucky enough to be chief of staff at a uh, at a company, you'll you'll get so much experience, right? Yeah, I definitely recommend it. I think it's a combination of two things. Number one, you deal with a lot of the really high leverage aspects relating to running a company, things like fundraising, making sure metrics are on on track, um, management structure, making sure the senior leadership team is functioning properly. But then you also end up jumping into specific functions or starting new functions as and when required. So. Apart from the work I did on customer support, I ended up heading the risk and regulatory function for a few months. And then when the pandemic hit and we started worrying about customers canceling direct debits and inability to pay, um, I scaled the revenue assurance function. And so apart from like the high leverage, what does a CEO do? How do you support them on that? You also become a very effective like operator and doer. And when you are a CEO, you are just doing a lot of things. So it's, it's good prep for that. So you, so you worked at this uh, hyper-growth uh, uh, large-scale company, Bulb, uh, identified a problem around customer success. That kind of, um, I guess, gave birth to the idea of Surfboard. Can you just give us a little bit um, more sort of insights of the founding story? So you had the idea. How do you take it from idea to, hey, I've got a company now. I'm running a company. Yeah, there was quite a long journey for me in doing that just because I stumbled across the idea super early in my journey at Bulb and I wasn't quite ready to leave Bulb and I knew that Bulb was having this problem. I wasn't certain that it was a comp- it was a problem that scaled across many other organizations. And so there were a couple things. Number one, while in my role at Bulb, one thing that I also did to understand just how to tackle this problem of scaling a customer support team was I spent a lot of time speaking to other support leaders at hypergrowth companies, whether it was Revolut or Monzo. Um, we also like spent a day going to see the DVLA in Swansea. And so for anyone who's not in the UK, the DVLA issues driver's licenses, government agency that's responsible for that and watched how, how they had run their support team. Um, so did a lot of research for the perspective from the perspective of improving Bulb's processes. Um, and that's when I realized this wasn't just a Bulb problem. It was something that whether you were a startup, a scale-up, government agency, a very established, um, more legacy business, um, was something that was uniformly experienced. Um, I then actually, in my case, I went on holiday to Israel and I was staying with a friend who was working at Instacart and he was a data scientist at Instacart and he was working the whole holiday. And I asked why he was doing that. And he said, oh, because we use this legacy workforce management system that doesn't do its job properly. So I have to keep updating and putting new data in there so that our support team can run properly. And I was like, we have this problem. I'm hearing this problem from all sorts of companies in the UK. It's quite interesting in real time watching somebody at a company completely across the pond in a completely different industry um, doing this as well. And so I think that was probably the impetus for me to start taking it seriously. Um, And that's when I went from, you know, research from the purpose of improving bulbs processes to research to how do you identify what the crux of the problem is um, and then start thinking about what the solution looks like um, from that perspective. And once I felt sufficiently validated, um, I decided to leave Bulb and, and start the company. I think the other thing I would mention is that I was never inspired to start something that was just like, you know, a better UX alternative to the incumbents that are already out there. 
For me, there was also a trigger around the pandemic and when people started working in different ways, whether it was hybrid or at home, or you saw this yearn for greater flexibility, but also more and more complaints around intrusive surveillance. And so for me, it was the lack of humanity in the way that the industry that Surfboard is operating in was dealt with prior to the creation of Surfboard that was like, okay, it's not just about like attaching a nicer way or a nicer look and feel or modernizing um, the fundamental specific nuances for the way software in this industry exists. It's about actually thinking about the problem from a first first principles approach and recognizing that the ways of working that software forces upon companies aren't necessarily um, appropriate for what you would expect today in a support team. Uh, And what data can you share about the company? Yeah. So um, as I said, started the company in December 2020. Um, We raised a pre-seed round um, right right from the get-go. I started as a solo founder, so spent um, the bulk of 2021 building out a team, validating the data science models that go into building Surfboard um, without actually building the UX and the UI that that companies companies would interact with today. Um, We started working with a set of five design partner customers in order to access the data, understand how it's categorized, build and validate those data science models. Um, once we felt good about those data science models, we started building the product um, that is that is now live. Um, and that went live in May this year, so just a few months ago. Um, we have just over 20 companies using the product. Um, you see it across industries like e-commerce, mobility, insurance and fintech, um, healthcare, and, um, and a couple others. Um, and then per per company, you see about 40 to 60 active users um, across the managers, but also um, what we call the surfers, who would traditionally be called customer service agents or associates. Uh, just around, around the, the verticals, so you mentioned a few or different industries that you serve. Um, often kind of early on, you, uh, you kind of narrow down on like one particular kind of industry. Can you tell us like if you've done that or why you haven't done that? Um, yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, for us, it's a little bit of like a two by two of the ideal industry being an industry that has high volumes of support in a standardized industry where the support queries tend to be across like a limited set of topics um, and also in industries where support queries have high urgency. And urgency is important because that's what the impetus is for a company to make sure that they get their workforce management or their team planning um, and the orchestration layer really nailed because it's costly if you don't from an SLA perspective or a retention perspective or cost perspective. It can be uh, sometimes as well. I mean, I've seen it there whereby the company kind of starts out, you're actually trying to think about maybe what is the industry the best served uh, but you see, like, okay, well, like, 10 legal companies have bought the uh, the product. Uh, and so, well, actually, well, there's something here. And this, you know, narrow down into the ICP and uh, kind of take it from there, right, and really kind of, you know, sort of double down on, on, on one particular industry, right? So uh, sometimes that's the case. Yeah, one thing I would add about Surfboard, and I think maybe the timing under which Surfboard started and the timing we're in now was that um, when we started at the end of 2020 or started thinking about who our ideal customer profile was in 2021 and 2022, the dominant industry where we were getting inbound were industries like e-commerce and venture-backed businesses in the consumer space. Um, I think potentially given my background, starting at Goldman and then Venture, I'm very hyper aware of macroeconomic cycles and very keen to make sure we diversify beyond one's 
that are maybe a little bit more volatile and subject to what happens mm -hmm. with you know inflation and a cost of living crisis. And so when I think about like that two by two of urgency and volume being the triggers for where a customer is most relevant to us, I mean, I look at industries like locksmiths or industries like debt collection agencies or those travel agencies where you have to call and cancel and people are, are using them regularly. And um, I think what's really important is that for us, it's about making sure we get a company when they are reaching the problem of scaling out of spreadsheets for orchestrating their team, but also making sure that they're an industry where um, from a business hygiene perspective for surfboard, um, we're not at the mercy of a specific industry um, experiencing whatever happens with the macroeconomic shocks. It makes sense, uh, uh, a sound strategy, uh, certainly given, you know, the current climate. And um, so obviously it's a young company, uh, so what you said, like, um, uh, you know, kind of less than two years old really. Uh, what are then, uh, given the time frame that the company's been around, sort of, you know, uh, a couple uh, of the key lessons that you have that you can share from building Surfboard to date? Yeah, I think given the experience that um, I had had at Bulb, seeing the legacy incumbents in our industry, and also like newer ones that I don't necessarily think are fully solving the customer problem, I think the biggest thing is to resist the temptation of just listening to what customers say verbatim or trying to reach feature parity with what's out there. Um, I think, like as I said, with what I learned in the pandemic around thinking about new ways of working, it really takes extensive user research in owning the customer problem and making sure that you're problem centric as opposed to jumping to solutions. I think when you're spending time selling a lot, it can be really easy just to bend over backwards for whatever customers say are missing or what they're looking for because you have to remember that they've been influenced by whoever's out there already who is telling them a specific way of working is best. And so it's really important that you provide them with a viable alternative to that, but making sure that you're focusing on what is the fundamental problem they have, not what is the solution they're educated on. Um, I think related to that, there's only so much I as a founder um, can diagnose when it comes to the problem. And so I think what that means at the early stage is hire people who are extremely product centric. And by that, I mean product engineers. And that doesn't need to be in their job title, but you should definitely vet for that when you're interviewing them is how do they interact in their questions around understanding the problem? How do they interact in understanding usage and engagement and what potential customers want versus what potential customers behavior looks like? Um, and then I guess another thing is just like design. I think um, we at Surfboard have invested a lot in design really early on. Of our first 10 employees, three of them were in the design team. And um, by doing that, we really could be very problem focused as opposed to jumping to specific solutions. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And you're a solo founder without a technical background. Um, what advice would you give to others in your position that are just starting out? Yeah, I think number one, you obviously need a really solid CTO. And by a solid CTO, they have to be a solid engineer who has the willingness and the ability to build things themselves, not just want to get into, you know, architecture and team building. But then they also have to be able to have the long term view over architecture and team building. And when it comes to team building, they have to have gravitas and charisma to be able to hire a team around them. Because ultimately, when you are a team that has to hire engineers and data scientists and designers, they want to make sure that they're drawn to a CTO who really can guide them down down the right path. And so um, in my case, I was really lucky that 
five months after we raised the round and effectively started Surfboard, I met um, Matt Schofield, who had previously co-founded a business called Credit Kudos. Um, that sold to Apple earlier this year, but um, got along well with Matt, and he was quite keen um, to go to a business that was at effectively day zero again, and we were very aligned in that. Um, I think the second thing is that you really have to trust people. As a solo founder, I think mentally the biggest challenge is that you always have this thing in your head telling you like nobody's ever going to care as much as you do. And to some degree, like it can be true, but the people who join an early stage business tend to be missionaries, not mercenaries. And um, you do have to hand over trust to them, especially um, in their respective departments, because they, they've joined you for a reason you've hired them for a reason. And so you can't micromanage or control everything. Um, and then I think standardizing processes is probably the third thing relating to like what sits in your head, but making sure that's scalable. And so um, for me personally, setting high standards across the board is something I care about a lot because um, some people might say that, you know, you got to 80, 20 it, but I have a personal hypothesis that if you 80, 20 it, the 20% that is low standards is going to start dripping into the 80% where it really matters. And so I think an example I use is that on Slack, I get really irritated if like there's typos or gratuitous exclamation marks or even Slack communications don't match our tone of voice that, that we want at Surfboard. And the reason for that is pretty simple is that we also Slack our customers. So if we're Slacking internally sloppily, it's going to take no time before that, start leaking, that starts leaking to external communication to customers. So I think like those are the three things that give me peace of mind. But as a solo founder, there's definitely um, a lot of challenges you have. It certainly feels lonely sometimes, but the only way to offset that is by um, really making sure that you do trust your team, that you hire people around you that have the gravitas and the experience that um, you they're deserving of your trust. Um, and that whatever is in your head, you try to um, institutionalize in your organization as much as possible. We we had a question um, a few weeks ago from a, a SaaS.Founder founder member, and he, he was asking about where where can you meet CTOs, right? Where do you go to meet CTOs? Uh, you met Matt, sort of as you say, like I think like five months in. Um, uh, where did you meet him? What advice have you like? Where like how? Yeah, how and when? Uh, where did you meet? Yeah, so I got really lucky that Matt, I actually came across his profile on Otta, but at the same time, um, our pre-seed investor, Fly Ventures, one of the partners had known him from when Matt started Credit Kudos at, at Entrepreneur First. Um, I think the best place is obviously through your network. Um, I cold outreached so many people on LinkedIn. Um, it would definitely be like probably in the hundreds and hundreds and met a ton of people from various um, levels from, you know, senior software engineer to tech lead to staff engineer to CTO at other companies. Um, in that process, I was really lucky that the um, gentleman who was CTO at checkout.com at the time called Riaz, um, he kindly responded and he was like, look, I'm not looking to move check it, move from checkout right now, but really happy to be an advisor. Um, and I would say that when you're a solo founder, you're not technical, it's really hard for you to vet talent of engineers. And so having somebody um, who is willing to be an advisor, who is willing to spend the time interviewing candidates for you, um, really helps you set aside the good and the great or the good and the not so good. So the cold outreach uh, was worth it uh, so in, in the end, uh, uh, for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. I actually that, think that always works out. And did you say otter? Or what, yeah, what, I did, yeah. yeah. How, what, what is that? I've, I've not heard of this before. What, oh, what's the website? Otters, um, it's a job marketplace. Um, companies go on, post jobs, candidates yeah. are on there across like all sorts of roles from commercial to technical to... Okay. And that's like the animal otter, is it? Or Oh, no, O-T-T-A. No OTT, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah gotcha. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Um, and um, obviously, we, we, when we had like a pre-call around this, um, something that you're you're really passionate about is about building a brand and building a brand kind of early, right? Uh, both for your customers and you know potential future customers and and, and for the team as well. So I'm going to start with you know when and why should a SaaS startup uh, build a brand? Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think when is as soon as possible. The second you start the company, you should start thinking about brand building. Um, when you think about consumer facing businesses, like, you know, the inception of Nike or um, anything, anything in that category, they think it's in their DNA. It's what enables them to succeed in B2B. I think people end up thinking way too much about functionality and not enough about the brand when B2B buyers, whilst they're buying for a company, it's the same people who buy, you know, Nike shoes or, or whatever. And so you do have to connect with their emotional needs, not just their, you know, tactical or functional needs. Um, I would say in my case, um, the first blog I wrote was why we're starting Surfboard. And it was very much that story of I've experienced a problem. The problem is terrible. I speak your language we are building you the tool that I wish we had when we were scaling a support team at Bulb. Um, and off the back of that, A, it's good for hiring. B, we had prospective customers start reaching out being like, hey, I'm really excited about what you're doing. It's how we ended up getting design partners that were willing to give us you know, access to their Zendesk or their intercom and um, be very supportive in user testing and user research. Um, and then C, obviously, for the purpose of hiring is that if you don't talk about why you're doing what you're doing or building that brand around it it's really hard from like a functional perspective to get somebody who's interested in joining who isn't going to be I guess for lack of a better term a, a mercenary like you at this stage really want to hire missionaries and I don't know how you bring missionaries on board if, if you're not investing in brand and, and storytelling I guess um I think quite a few of us have read Sapiens and um, at the crux of humankind, it's it's our most basic instinct and it's why we as humans um, have evolved the way we do. Yeah, uh, uh, coincidentally, um, I recorded a podcast earlier today with uh, Alina Vandenberg, who's the co-CEO of Chili Piper. Um, they, they were founded in 2016. Uh, today, they're doing 30 million in ARR uh, and... I wouldn't say it was not a regret, but a learning for her was to invest in brand earlier because they spent so much time on the product. And, you you know, speaking to you and the listeners are probably thinking, well, 30 million ARR is a pretty good business, right? I'll take that. And, yeah. you know, most of, most of us would, uh, me included. Uh, but she believed that had she invested in brand earlier, they'd be much further ahead. Um, and they're only really just starting to, you know, invest in brand over the last sort of year or maybe two um, so yeah, just kind of timely given that we're having this conversation and, uh, uh, Alina mentioned that as the kind of one area that, you know, they were very product focused, but not enough on, on the, the, the brand side of things, uh, uh, as well. So absolutely. Yeah. I think what I would say about Chili Piper and also Surfboard is the commonality 
is also unique names in the industry that don't necessarily apply to, you know, a function within the product. And I think um, that also just allows you to, to build a brand around just what, what you've called yourself. And so um, while I don't doubt what she said, I'm sure there was a little bit more like implicit brand thinking early on, even even at inception when they called themselves Chili Piper. <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely, and uh, I mean they they came up with their their own hot sauce as part of the brand play, and uh, I mean what you're going to come up with some something around surfboards or uh, <laughs> something surf related, uh, I, I'm sure uh, uh, as well. Um, and like given that you you've had this obsessive focus on building brand that you know connects with customers, <clears throat> how have you really gone about building brand? The specific examples, um, and what are the tangible results? Yeah. So number one is um, building a community around what you do and really differentiating between what is for the purpose of direct sales and acquisition and what is for the broader community. Um, one stat that I obsess with um, is that at any point in time of your addressable market, only 5% of them are going to be buying. And so do you just ignore the 95%? I don't think so. And that's where brand building comes in. I mean, I guess like there's that quote that Coca-Cola doesn't advertise on billboards because you're going to go and buy Coca-Cola right away. But when you are thirsty, you'll remember Coca-Cola. And I think it's the same thing with the B2B buyer journey. Um, and so from, from that capacity, what we really invest in is community building that isn't necessarily just about surfboard, but relates to any topic that relates to scaling a customer support team. And so for us, that means we do weekly blog posts. Um, we also do weekly webinars. On our webinars, we feature people who are within our community. So whether it's our customers, whether it's our partners, whether it's us talking about our own experiences of scaling a customer support team, we're quite deliberate that unless it's a feature release related webinar, all of our other webinars are just about the topic. They're not intended to plug surfboard. We really want to do um, what's best for our community and provide value to them in less tangible ways than measuring conversion to, you know, booking a demo and then um, converting, converting to a customer. Um, I think the second thing is we use brand to think about how we inject personality into our product. Um, and so again, like being really granular in my examples, um, we invested in getting an illustrator really on. And so with that illustrator, we use the themes of waves of animals underwater. Um, and so when you're waiting for your schedule to load on surfboard, you have this like happy fish looking at a computer um, as that's generating. And again, like it's about connecting to the emotional needs, not just the functional needs um, of, of a potential customer. And then I think the final thing is simplifying how you communicate what you do. Um, I think for most B2B companies, it's it's rare to hear that you're in an environment that has no competitors. And so then you have to very succinctly describe to yourself, to your team, and to your potential customers in the market that you operate in, how do you differentiate? And we took a lot of inspiration from government digital services when they said we're simpler, faster, and better. And that started getting picked up by the equivalent of government digital service globally. And so we said, what are our three words? And we're simpler, we're smarter, which means that we fully automate the end-to-end -end process, and we're fairer. And that reflects our approach to shift planning, diversity, and scheduling. But it helps us use those three words to inform what we communicate externally, but how we prioritize things internally. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a great point you mentioned about just the the proliferation of you know SaaS companies that there are in every like vertical sort of these days, right? So um, I think 
competition, you, you know, is certainly one of the, the, the biggest challenges for a SaaS company to be really kind of like stand out amongst the 50 or 100 or 1,000 of other SaaS products that are probably doing something very similar to you. Uh, and, and that's really kind of why you've got to start thinking about, you know, building brand, you know, kind of early and too many think about it too late. But to really kind of stand out, why should I buy X over Y? Um, you know, if you if you connect with that brand, the personality, the CEO, the founder, um, et cetera, the webinars you've been attending, you know, that is going to uh, really kind of hold some credence, right? Totally. And it also comes down to standardization. Like, I think at this point, it's easy for me to get on a sales conversation and for me to say, oh, I've lived and breathed your experience, therefore you should buy Surfboard. I mean, one day, hopefully, if Surfboard's successful, it's not just going to be me. It's going to be a lot of other people doing that. And you can't scale just me doing it, but you can scale having a brand where everybody associates surfboard with a certain set of principles. And those principles are embedded in our product, how we communicate, how we sell, how we host things for the environment that we live in that have nothing to do with selling. And I think that like that comes down to building a brand. When surfboard is successful. Thank you. And you also mentioned around <clears throat> missionaries versus mercenaries. Um, so how has building a brand sort of like helped you with hiring? Yeah, I think with building a brand, it's come down to, um, a few different things. Number one is being able to communicate. I mean, when I say simpler, smarter, fairer, making sure that when we hire, it's not just our brand principles, but it's how we operate as a company. How do they think about simplicity? How do they think about intelligence and automation? How do they think about fairness and, you know, making the world of scheduling and workforce planning a lot more human and trying to make sure we hire people that identify very closely with our brand, but our broader mission. Um, I think the second thing is translating the brand values and the company values into our operational values. And so um, things like keeping it simple aren't just how we build our product. It's also how we communicate internally. Like everything has to be start with the point. Um, one of our values is zero faff. And so that means that if we have something in our product or we have something in writing or we have a specific meeting or process that we don't think is necessary, it gets banned really quickly. Um, and so that's something that we really test for in hiring. But it's also something that when we do um, performance reviews, um, the team is assessed against this set of values, but then how do they fit into the specific brand? And finally, when I think about product engineers, um, the fish that I described that appears when, um, when you're generating the schedule, that was an idea by one of our engineers who said, we have a lot of brand and personality on our website. And when we talk about what we're doing, how do we make sure that's visible when somebody is actually in Surfboard's product as well? So it's not just for sales and marketing and it's the end-to-end -end experience from sales, marketing, onboarding, customer success, usage, retention, everything else. To summarize, what are, what are your key takeaways on, on building a brand uh, before we move into the, uh, the, the quick fire uh, questions? Yeah, I think number one is that sometimes venture capitalists can be obsessed with category definition. I wouldn't obsess over that because building a brand is arguably much more important. Like, I mean, if I think about the Coca-Cola example, um, there's other pops, they exist. Coca-Cola has invested in building a brand around sodas and, you know, carbonated drinks. I think with software businesses, that's even more important because you don't have the first mover advantage in many cases that Coca-Cola has. And, um, 
Frank Slootman in Amp It Up really advocates that you don't think about redefining a category that already exists because then you're effectively pushing water uphill. But what you can do is really make sure that when you talk about differentiation, um, that's the most important messaging that comes across. So that, you know, in our case, somebody's looking for scheduling or workforce management software. There's no reason we have to start calling it team orchestration software, which is what we would prefer to call it as because somebody's looking for a specific category of software. Mm. But what we can do is use simpler, smarter and fairer to describe why we're different from what's already out there. No, great advice and also um, great book, uh, Amp It Up and Frank Slootman doing great things with Snowflake. I think, yeah, interesting as well that the, the there was and, and maybe there still is this huge buzz from VCs about category creation and the book Play Bigger and, you, you know, I think certainly like last couple of years, it's all about category creation. I haven't seen so much this year um, on that, so I don't know if the trend is changing or, or are they still you know, uh, I guess advocating for all that. Yeah, I don't know. I think the problem with being in an existing category is that specifically when you're speaking to VCs, they then look at what's already out there and often have like a checklist of, okay, this is your product roadmap based on the category that's out there. I think the conversation tends to be a lot easier with customers because as I said, customers are already looking for that category of software. And they already know what the hook within that product suite is. They know what the bells and whistles are versus what the core feature of that is. Um, and so, yeah, you end up having to think about the conversations you have with potential investors very differently from the conversations you have with potential customers. And obviously, customers live and breathe what you're doing. So that tends to be um, an easier conversation. Let's move into the, uh, the quick fire questions. So mm -hmm. what one thing uh, has moved the needle the most for Surfboard? Yeah, investing in design. I think like I talked earlier about owning the problem and investing in design has definitely been um, probably the most effective thing we've done. What's the best advice you have ever received? The best advice I ever received um, was when I was an incoming analyst at Goldman Sachs and the uh, COO of the business at the time spoke to the incoming analyst class and said, uh, the best way to judge someone is to see how they treat somebody they don't need anything from. Um, and as I started applying that advice to my personal life, my professional life, um, I think I was really able to better surround myself with um, really great people. Good advice in indeed. What's your biggest failure and lesson learned? <sighs> Good question. I think it probably relates to... Um, the inverse of what's moved the needle most. And I think it's like taking quite literally what prospective customers say they want without going those, those layers deeper and really diagnosing the problem. And what, what's the hardest thing uh, about being a CEO? The work never ends. And so you have to inorganically create boundaries for yourself. Um, I think it's really easy to say, okay, I'll focus on myself once the dust settles on fundraising, or I'll focus on myself once the dust settles on onboarding. Um, the dust never settles, and so you have to just make sure that you you carve that time for yourself. Uh, what about your daily routine? So given that work never ends and it is a tough job being a CEO, uh, what does your daily routine look like, and how does that kind of help optimize you for you, you know uh, the work ahead and the day ahead? 
Yeah, so unlike I guess a lot of um, great CEOs, I'm not a super early riser. Um, I do make sure I get to inbox zero by 9.30, so I try to not have any meetings first thing in the morning so that I can get my inbox under control. Um, I divide my week based on meetings and no meetings days and internal versus external. So Mondays and Wednesdays are for external meetings, Tuesdays and Thursdays are for internal meetings and brainstorming sessions. Fridays, I try to have as minimal meetings as possible just to use that as, as focus time. Um, and then I guess relating to what I said around carving time for yourself, it's really, really hard to do it. And the best way to do it is to find avenues where you don't have your phone within reach. And so I used to competitive swim when I was in high school. I try to swim four times a week now. It's obviously great for, you know, your body and like your physical health, but I mostly do it because you can't physically access a phone when you're, when you're in a swimming pool. Yeah. And also, I guess, um, yeah, as you say, like mentally when you're swimming, probably very difficult to think about work. Um, I don't, I haven't really been, uh, well, swimming for, for exercise for a, a long time, but I find there's certain things, <clears throat> maybe, I think yoga for, for one, and maybe like a, a brutal kind of workout with a personal trainer or something like that. You just can't really think about work and you switch off and that does give you space. But I find if I like jump on the Peloton, I can drift into work like super easy uh, uh, on that. Um, yeah. So I'm a good swimmer, which sounds like a flex, but it's it's not. Which means you that like I can do it quite naturally and think about work. So you almost yeah. I sound a bit like you know like a like I torture myself doing this. But one way to combat that is to go to an unheated swimming pool because you need that like focus on survival that gets you to stop thinking about work. Very good. Very good. Um, um, okay, so you're speaking at SAS.2022 this October, 17th to the 19th. Uh, excited to have you come to Dublin. Um, do you know what you're speaking about? And, yeah. And if you can share that. And, and what are you looking forward to as well? Yeah, so I actually haven't been to Dublin for a really long time. I'm super excited. Um, it's the first pure SaaS conference that um, I'll have been to. Um, and so really excited to meet other founders and people within the ecosystem. Um, I am speaking about scaling customer support and success teams. Um, obviously, you have support teams in every industry possible, but within SaaS, it's particularly important because you have the nuance um, of really being able to use support teams to diagnose um, the product queries that are coming in, product defects, prioritize your roadmap a lot better by really using your support and your success teams to understand usage, retention, troubleshooting, um, and also clarify your ideal customer profile. Because I think it's one thing for a sales team to go out and say like, you know, these are the people who are resonating best with our value proposition, but then you sometimes create a downstream problem where they come in and then the usage isn't as, as, isn't as expected. And so, um, yeah, speaking about scaling and leveraging the support team um, across an organization and really treating it as a, a revenue driver, not a, a cost center. Awesome. Looking forward to that. And of course, meeting you, uh, you know, in person in, in Dublin. Uh, so uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and uh, finally, uh, what is your favorite business book and what are you currently reading? Yeah, I guess I cited Frank Slootman earlier in this conversation, so it would be a sin for me to not say amp it up. Um, look, I think like the hard thing about hard things is probably one that gets quoted a lot, but practically, like I end up rereading a lot of chapters as I endure the problems that, that he describes in it. So both of those are ones that I have post-it notes and constantly coming back come, come back to frequently. Um, I'm currently reading The Italians by John Hooper. Um, it 
is an account of the micro structures within Italian societies, whether it's the family, the church, uh, the interest in food, the mobs in Italy. Um, I've heard he also wrote a book called The Spaniards, so I'll probably read that after. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, uh, I, I read Ampit up um, earlier this year, I'm pretty sure, and yeah, really, uh, really enjoyed that. And Frank's directness uh, as yeah. well, so it's uh, very good. Um, where can people find you online, Natasha? If obviously they're going to hopefully see you in person or uh, if they're coming to Sassock in Dublin, uh, but where can they find you online? Really only LinkedIn. I wish I was uh, the type of person that's on Twitter, but I'm just not witty enough, unfortunately. So uh, Natasha Ratanchi-Stein on, on LinkedIn. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, uh, Natasha Ratanchi-Stein, thanks so much for being a great guest uh, on the Sassock Revolution show today and sharing with the Sassock audience. Look forward to seeing you in October uh, in Dublin at Sassock 2022. Thanks so much once again for being a great guest on the Sassock Revolution show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SAS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.